It's been rightly said that the local church is a lot like a football game. One reason why is because, you know, in a football game, you have 22 exhausted people struggling on the field while the stadium seats are filled with fans who are in desperate need of exercise. You know, it's in similar fashion that the church is oftentimes filled with seat-warming saints who love to look on as overworked servants struggle to maintain the ministry. And at the same time, let's not forget about those who are still sitting at home grumbling about it all. I'm, of course, referring to the armchair quarterbacks who sit at home and complain about every bad play and every decision that they disagree with, and they make their voices heard as they grumble and complain about all of these things. And it's in similar fashion that there are many complaining Christians who would rather sit at home and watch online because, you know, the leaders of the church made the wrong decision that they totally disagree with, or there's Christians at the church that won't wear their mask, or they're wearing too many masks, or all these other things. And it's for this reason that, listen, many of these Christians are failing to be perfected because they fail to engage in the process of participation. They they just simply won't get on the field and get in the game. And in light of this comparison, well, I want to take a moment to examine our own lives. And at the beginning of this study, I'd like to present a question. And the question is this, am I being perfected through participation or have I become a stadium seat warmer or just an armchair observer? Well, before you rush to answer this question, let's take some time to consider the way that Paul encouraged every Christian to actively participate in the local church. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that believers are being perfected through prayerful participation. Secondly, we'll consider how believers are being perfected through communal participation And then thirdly and finally, we'll see how believers are being perfected through sacrificial participation. Well, with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Here we find Paul. He's encouraging his audience to be perfected through participation. And as you make your way to the first chapter of Philippians, I just want to set the stage for our study today by taking a moment to remind you that this was one of Paul's prison epistles. Much like Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi while he was sitting in a Roman prison. It's for this reason that he mentioned his chains four times here in the first chapter of Philippians. He's referring to literal chains that are keeping him bound in a Roman prison. And while it's true that Paul was writing this letter from a Roman prison, Well, it's also true that he wanted to take this opportunity to encourage the Christians who were there at the church in Philippi. And with this context in mind, let's pick up our study of this book, beginning there at Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, Paul declares this. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense 
and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. Now, here in our text today, we find Paul, he's expressing his gratitude for the Christians who were there in Philippi. And one reason for why he took this time to thank the Lord for the Philippian believers there was due to the fact that they had sent financial and emotional support during the time that he spent there in prison. And with that being the case, Paul thanked the Lord upon every remembrance of them. And while he wasn't able to participate with them there at the Fellowship of Faith in Philippi, Paul participated from afar. Paul participated with them from afar by making mention of them in his prayers. And he did this by joyfully presenting the Lord with prayers on behalf of those believers. Now in our study next week, we're going to learn more about the way in which Paul prayed for the Christians there at the church in Philippi. As a matter of fact, if you would look with me there at Philippians chapter 1, I want, to, uh, I want to jump forward to verse 9. There Paul goes on to declare, and this I pray. So here's, here's his prayer, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's praying for the perfection of the Christians there in Philippi. And in the same way, Paul was also praying for the Christians in all of the churches where he was a minister. You know, Paul went from town to town planting churches and he was praying for the people that he was leaving behind after the church uh, was uh, uh, being pastored by somebody else. And, And we find examples of this in his epistles. For example, he told the Christians in Rome that he was always praying for them without ceasing. Paul was praying for them without ceasing. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we find Paul assuring the Christians there at the church in Thessalonica that he gave thanks to God always for them all as he made mention of them in his prayers. We find examples of Paul praying for Christians in other churches and in this way he was participating in their ongoing perfection. Without debate, Paul understood the importance of helping other believers to be perfected through prayerful participation. And it's for this reason that he decided to participate in the perfection of others by simply just praying for them. And during these days of his imprisonment, was he less effective in his ministry? Not necessarily. Because he was able to pray for them from that prison cell. And in light of his example, listen, we too can take part in the perfection of others as we pray for them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess just real quick here that we all know someone who's imperfect. I'm guessing we all know somebody. We might be sitting by them. But, uh, but we all know someone who's imperfect. And the fact is we're all imperfect. And yet we can effectively pray for them. And, and, and rather than complaining about all of their imperfections as we might like to do, Listen, if we turned every complaint about that imperfect person into a prayer, how effective would that be? How would God bless those prayers in helping that person to become perfect? So listen, rather than complaining about the imperfections of the people that you like to complain about, how about just praying for them that God might help them to become perfect? 
Well, with that, I just want to encourage you that we ought to be praying for one another in our families, in our homes. We have to be praying for another, one another in our churches and for those that we know beyond the four walls of this fellowship. We have to be praying for those who are beyond our church. And with this as the goal, let's follow in the footsteps of Paul by praying for the perfection of those that are abroad. And, and I like the way that Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 6. It's verses 18 through 20. There he encourages the Christians in Ephesus to pray always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for how many saints? For all the saints and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. According to Paul, we've been called to pray for one another with prayers and supplications that we should present in the power of the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, Paul also calls us to persevere in our prayers for all the saints. The saints here in our church and the saints beyond. We ought to be praying, we ought to be offering up intercessions on behalf of other believers. And and this, of course, includes those who are out there preaching the gospel. Paul says, hey, pray for me. And he mentions his chains here in Ephesians chapter 6 because this is another one of those prison epistles. He's saying, hey, pray for me that I may speak boldly. Remember, he's imprisoned. And they could easily kill him for his testimony. And, and you better believe that Paul was struggling with some fears there that, that well, if, I, if I'm too bold in my witness, they might just kill me, so pray for me that I, may, uh, I might be bold. But Paul's asking for them to pray for him, and we ought to be praying for those who are on the mission field, and we ought to be praying for the Christians who are in the 1040 window in areas of the world where you can be killed for being a Christian. Let's pray for the Christians who are ministering there in Gaza. Let's pray for the Christians who are ministering there in the West Bank and in Israel. Let's pray for Christians both here and abroad so that the Lord might perfect them and in the process of them being perfected that they might be able to accomplish the ministry that he's given to them. And not only should we be be, praying for Christians here in our church and beyond, but we ought to also be praying for those who have been called and appointed uh, to, to lead us politically speaking. And this was precisely the point that Paul's making in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's verses 1 through 4 where he declares, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Christian, listen, we've been called to present prayerful supplications and intercessions on behalf of everyone. And yes, this includes those who have been appointed to political positions of leadership. I don't care whether you like the politician or not. We've been called to pray for them. And whether you agree with their policies or not, we ought to be praying for them. You know, if we turned every complaint that we had about a political leader into a prayer, how effective would that be? How might our nation or the world be different 
if Christians really got down to brass tacks and prayed for our political leaders. He tells us to do this so that we can lead a quiet and peaceful life. Are we enjoying a quiet and peaceful life right now? If not, is it partially because Christians aren't praying enough for our political leaders? Whether we're talking about our legislative leaders or the executive branch or judicial leaders, listen, we should be praying for their perfection so that we can lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and holiness. As we consider all of these verses, listen, we can see how every believer has been called to participate in the perfection of others by simply spending more and more time praying for those both within our church and beyond. At the same time, we've also been called to pray for our own perfection as we realize that, hey, we also are not perfect. That imperfect person I was talking about earlier is probably closer than you think. Yeah, you might be sitting next to them or they might be sitting in your chair right now. And and we have to remember this. You know, it's one thing to pray for the perfection of somebody else all the while looking down on them like, like we've arrived or something. Like, well, I'm perfect, but what's wrong with these people, you know? We need to be praying for our own perfection. We need to be praying that the Lord would continue to perfect us. And in order to make my case, let's consider the model prayer that the Lord presented to his disciples. And with this as the focus, hold your place here in the book of Philippians, and let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. You see it's here in the sixth chapter of Matthew's Gospel account where we find the disciples of Christ Jesus. They're asking the Lord to teach them how to pray. They 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 wanted to learn how to pray in the right way. And and in response to their request, the Lord Jesus presents them with a model prayer. And and it's important to note this, that this is a model prayer, not a prayer to be repeated as a vain repetition. We're to take this prayer and use it uh, as an example for how we ought to be praying. Well, with this as the focus, let's consider the instructions that the Lord Jesus presents here in Matthew 6. You would look with me there beginning at verse 5 because here Jesus begins the explanation or this instruction by declaring, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's providing his disciples with a model prayer. 
He presents this model prayer so that those who follow him can prayerfully begin to seek the heavenly help that we need, all the while knowing God the Father already knows what we need. God the Father already knows what we need, and so, well, then why should we pray about it? If he already knows what we need, then why should we spend time praying about it? Well, mostly because our prayers are designed to help us to seek his will for our lives. A lot of people treat prayers as the laundry list of things that we want from God, and yet our prayers are really designed to bring us to a place of submission where we're ready to hear from him about his will for us. And so that's why you know, Jesus says, hey, pray for daily provision. Pray for your daily bread. How many of us you know, with a nice bank account, how many of us with you know, money to spare are praying for daily bread? Oh, Lord, please, <laughs> I need some daily bread like Oprah. You know, I just, please, Lord. Oh, we're, you know, here in America, oftentimes trusting in the job, the bank account, the, the savings, all these sorts of things. We've forgotten about relying on daily bread from the Lord. And yet, this is where we need to remember in our prayers, the Lord is the one who provides and how quickly do we remember that as soon as we don't have the job anymore, as soon as the, the dollar isn't worth anything anymore? We, gotta, we have to remember that God is the one who wants to perfect us by reminding us that we rely on him. And not only that, but listen, uh, he also tells us here in, in verse 12 to forgive us of our debts. He, he's praying for forgiveness as we forgive our debtors. Now listen, the path of perfection is not taken by those who hold on to bitter unforgiveness. You can't be on the path of perfection while simultaneously holding unforgiveness towards somebody else. Two different paths going in two different directions. And so Jesus is saying here, hey, listen, listen if, you, if you really want to pray correctly, you need to be praying that you're as forgiving as the Lord is forgiving of us. And then he says, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And on the path of perfection, we need help from the Lord because, listen, temptations from the evil one are always before us. And those temptations want to lead us back to a path of imperfection. And the Lord wants us to continue walking on the path of perfection. Therefore, we have to pray. We have to pray, God, help us. Help us today to follow you on the path of perfection. And as we pray for godly guidance in this way, the Lord will help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to be perfected through this prayerful participation. Now, this brings us to our second point because, listen, Believers are not only perfected through prayerful participation, but believers are also being perfected through communal participation. And with this as the focus, let's turn in our Bibles back to Philippians chapter 1. Here we find Paul. He's commending the Christians there at the church in Philippi for the way that they were participating with others there in their fellowship of faith. And I want to consider the way that Paul puts it here, beginning at verse 3. Here again, he declares, I thank my God upon every remembrance for you, Always, in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's complimenting the Christians there at the church in Philippi and 
One reason why is because they were faithfully participating in the great commission of Christ Jesus. And to prove my point, it'll help you to know that the word fellowship, which is found there in verse 5, that word fellowship was translated from the Greek word koinonia, which speaks of the joint participation that takes place within the communion of Christian community. Koinonia is the, the joint participation that takes place when Christians gather together in community and serve the Lord together. The communion of Christian community includes the personal participation of each individual. And listen, if you are not participating in the fellowship of your church, then you're also failing to be perfected in the way that God wants to perfect you. To make my case, let's consider another example of the way this word is used in connection with fellowship. It's uh, in Luke's account that we find in Acts chapter 2. There in his description of the primitive church, it's verses 42 and 43 where Luke tells us that they, the church, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, koinonia, and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Here in these verses we find Luke, he's using the Greek word koinonia as he describes the fellowship of the first century church there in Jerusalem. In other words, the Christians there at that primitive church were not only showing up for the Bible studies. You know, they heard John's teaching this Sunday, or they heard, you know, Matthew's teaching this Sunday, and they they loved to show up for the Bible studies. But they weren't just showing up for the Bible studies. They also participated in the fellowship that took place before and after the Bible studies. And they participated in the breaking of bread, which is probably a reference to the communion service, but also to the potluck fellowship that would happen afterwards. And and they spent time praying together. They were investing in this fellowship together. And in light of their example, I encourage every Christian to make sure that we're actually participating in our fellowship of faith. With this as the encouragement, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking this, am I actually plugged in and participating in the fellowship here at our church? Or am I just the Christian who shows up in the middle of worship and then, you know, as soon as the last song's over, you're up and out because, you know, there's so much more important things to do with your Sunday. Christian, listen, church is so much more than just a Sunday Bible study. And listen, if you show up week after week just to hear me teach, you know, hey, I, I appreciate the compliment there, but listen, church is so much more than just this Bible study. Church is so much more than just a Bible study. And, and there are so many Christians that are missing out because, well, I don't really care for the music. You, you, you don't care to sing about Jesus? Is that what you're saying? You know, they don't, I mean, you know, they don't have time to show up for two services, you know, because the game's on today and, you know, that's so, sports ball is so important. Uh, I got to see that. There's, there's no way to just record that and watch it later. Really? Church is so much more, much more than just the Bible study. We should be serving together. We should be socializing together. We should be using our spiritual gifts to build one another up and edify one another. And it's for this reason that Paul commended the Christians there at the church in Philippi 
because they were committed to their Christian community. And we should also notice that Paul applauded them for their participation in the Great Commission, beginning with the gospel. And if you would notice with me again there in verse 5, Paul refers to their fellowship, their koinonia, in the gospel. Just to be clear, I should spend a second reminding you, the Greek word, which is translated gospel, it speaks of good news. They, they were fellowshipping in the good news. In the context of the Christian faith, the gospel is the good news that Jesus died for our sins so that sinners might be saved by faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's for this reason that the Lord Jesus commanded every Christian to participate in the Great Commission. And he he did this by declaring in Mark chapter 16, it's verse 15, he declares, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every uh, creature. And listen, you know, this is the the gospel message, the, the, the good news of how we can be saved. This is something that we should be presenting to every person who will listen. Knowing that the Christians there in Philippi were committed to the great commission of Christ Jesus, Paul took this time to commend them. As a matter of fact, look with me again. We'll back up and begin reading at verse 3. Here again, Paul declares, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. According to Paul, the Christians there in Philippi, they, they weren't believers who you know, came to Christ and they were on fire you know, at the beginning and they were just ready to share their gospel with anybody who would listen. But then you know, kind of over time, it just kind of got you know, blase, blase and you know, more important things to do. And you know, we've got to get to the chariot races there in Philippi and these sorts of things. and So many more things important. Nope. Paul's saying, man, you guys are awesome. Why? Because from the first day of your conversion until even today, you've been committed to the fellowship of the gospel. From the moment of their conversion, they remained committed until the day when Paul penned this epistle. And in light of their example, I encourage every Christian to realize that the communal participation which results in our perfection includes an act of commitment to the great commission by which we entered into the fellowship of faith. We entered in when we received the gospel message by a believer who was engaging in the great commission. And from that point of our conversion, we should continue to be committed to our communal participation so that we can continue to be perfected. And yet I see Christians, by and large, just coming into the church, falling out of the church, coming into the church, falling out of the church, and they wonder why they're not growing. Well, if this is your plan, don't expect to grow. The process of our perfection, practically speaking, includes a commitment to communal participation, which includes the work of the Great Commission that begins with the work of evangelism. Think about it. When it comes to the standard of perfection, as we talk about you know, being perfected in Christ, as we talk about the perfection of the born-again believer, we should take a moment to ask, well, well who is the standard of perfection? Is it Billy Graham? You know, is, it, is it Swindoll? Is it, is it 
Chuck Smith? You know, who, who is the standard of perfection that we're, that we're trying to move towards? And the answer, of course, you know, is the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone is the standard by which we measure human perfection. Therefore, listen, the believers who are being perfected will become more and more like Jesus because this is our predestination. We have been predestined to be transformed into the image of Christ Jesus. We were predestined to become more and more like Jesus and seeing how Jesus himself was an evangelist. Then shouldn't we? become evangelists? If Jesus is the standard and Jesus was an evangelist and we're becoming like Jesus, then we're going to want to engage in evangelism. That being the case, it only stands to reason that those who are in fact being perfected will begin to participate in the spiritual discipline of evangelism. And and, and you might be overwhelmed by that thought. You might be thinking, I could never be an evangelist. Listen, the Lord's not asking you you to go do it in your strength or power. That would be silly. No, he, he wants to empower us. He wants to accomplish this good work both in and through us as he perfects us. And to prove my point, let's take a closer look here at Philippians chapter 1. Look with me again, beginning at verse 3. Here again, Paul declares, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for to put it in Texan terms, y'all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, we must not fail to notice that Paul wasn't placing his confidence in the original recipients of this epistle. He wasn't saying, look, I'm confident of this very thing, that you guys got this, that you guys are awesome. Go team Christian, yay. You know, nope. He wasn't confident in the Christians in Philippi. He was confident in Christ Jesus. He was confident in Christ's ability to complete the good work that he was accomplishing in them. And just to be clear, it's important for us to understand that this good work that Paul is referring to, it began before those believers were born. The good work that he was accomplishing in them began before those believers were born. It was before the foundations of the world when the Lord determined that he would offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Then came the day when the Lord Jesus actually accomplished this work by dying for our sins so that sinners could be saved from the punishment that we all deserve. And and the good work didn't stop there because, listen, he then rose from the grave, he ascended into heaven, and it was at that point in time when he then sent the Holy Spirit to come and draw sinners to himself through the conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. This is the good work by which the Lord draws us to himself. And in light of these things, there should be no doubt in our minds that our salvation is entirely the work of a sovereign God. If you think that it's God's work and a little bit of my work and we put it together and get something, mm -mm. we bring nothing to the table except our sins. 
And Christ did everything necessary for our salvation and then sent the Holy Spirit to draw us to the cross. And now those who respond to the gospel of grace by faith in Jesus Christ can also be, as Paul says in verse 6, confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That word complete well, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of that which is fully accomplished. The same Greek word is also used of that which has been perfected. And what this means is that the one who died for us and the one who drew, him, uh, drew us to himself is the same one who will faithfully complete this good work that he started as he continues to perfect us by the power of the Holy Spirit. With this as the goal, we do well to participate in the process through obedience. We do well to participate in the process of perfection through the fellowship of the gospel. Now, in order to put a finer tip on this, I just want to take some time to consider uh, something that the Apostle John wrote in his first epistle. So hold your place here in the book of Philippians, and let's turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. And it's here in 1 John chapter 1. This is where we find the Apostle John. He's helping his readers to see the connection between our participation in the church and the sanctification that results in our being perfected. And while there are those who insist that, well, Christians don't need to go to church in order to go to heaven, well, the Apostle John assures us that the personal perfection that, that we need to experience by way of the process of sanctification is directly connected to communal participation. So yeah, you don't have to go to church to go to heaven. And yet, Paul or John here seems to su suggest that there is an aspect of our sanctification that takes place in the context of Christian community. And I want to consider how John puts it here in 1 John chapter 1. Look with me there beginning at verse 5. Here John declares, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with who? With one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, according to the Apostle John here, the believer who is truly walking in the light of the Lord will not only have fellowship with the Lord, will not only have koinonia with the Lord, but we will also enter into the fellowship of faith. We will have koinonia with one another as we begin to engage in communal participation. And as we begin to encourage one another and as we continue to walk in the light of the Lord together, listen, the positional perfection that we enjoy in Christ begins to become practical perfection as the Lord helps us to become more and more like him. In other words, listen, at the moment of our conversion, we are positionally perfect in Christ. At the moment of our conversion, we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And is at that point in time when we are covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Believer, listen, when God the Father looks at you right now, he looks at you through the lens of Christ's righteousness because your sins were paid for on the cross, past, present, and the future. 
We are positionally perfect in Christ Jesus, and yet that positional perfection needs to be now worked out as we begin to become sanctified and we learn how to become practically perfect in Christ Jesus. And so while I'm not suggesting that a person must go to church in order to go to heaven, that, that would be silly. That would be like saying, well, you know, going to Whataburger makes you a hamburger, right? Going to church does not make us Christians. Trusting in Jesus Christ makes us Christians. And while we are positionally perfect in Christ, there's still the process of sanctification by which we are being practically perfected. And this process takes place within the participation of Christian community where believers are holding one another accountable and challenging one another and encouraging one another. It's here in the church where as we participate, each Christian is using spiritual gifts to build up one another. And all of this is a necessary part of our practical perfection. Now, this brings us to our third and final point, because listen, believers are not only perfected through prayerful participation and believers are not only perfected through communal participation, but believers are also perfected through sacrificial participation. And to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to Philippians chapter one, because here we find Paul, he's talking about the way that these believers were sacrificially participating in his ministry. I want to consider the way that Paul puts it Here in Philippians chapter 1, let's back up once again and begin reading at verse 3. Here again he declares, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, Because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. Now, here in the final section of our text today, we find Paul, he's continuing to commend the Christians there in Philippi. And the reason why is because they had become believers who were demonstrably partakers of God's grace. They were demonstrably partakers of God's grace. And just to be clear, uh, when we talk about them being partakers, that word partakers, which is found there at the end of verse 7, that word is translated from a Greek word, which was also used of those who were joint partners or Christian companions. And the same word was uh, used of those who participate with others in any endeavor. So once again, we find another word here that's talking about participation. And, and what this means then is that uh, the Christians there in Philippi were not only fellowshipping in the gospel, but that fellowship in the gospel turned into a partnership with Paul, all according to the grace of God. I like the way that the scholars who created the English Standard Version render this verse. They render verse 7 in this way. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers, participants with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now from this, we can see here that Paul was commending the Christians there in Philippi for all of the ways that they had become participants 
in the ministry of grace that God had given to Paul. Remember, uh, Paul had been called by the Lord uh, to bring the grace of God into the Gentile world. He was the uh, apostle to the Gentiles. He was also given the blueprint or the floor plan or, or the first principles of the Christian faith, which is spelled out in the epistles. And, and now Paul is saying, hey, you're taking part with me in this grace that has been extended to me. And this participation even included the way that they supported him while he was in his chains. Remember, Paul is writing this as he's bound in chains in some sort of Roman prison. And in order to grasp the way that these believers at the church in Philippi were participating in Paul's imprisonment, well, I want to take a moment to consider the financial gifts that they were sending in support of Paul's apostolic ministry. If you would hold your place here and let's flip forward a few chapters. If you would, let's turn to Philippians chapter 4. Here we find Paul describing the way that they were financially supporting his ministry. If you would look with me there, Philippians chapter 4. We'll begin reading at verse 15. Here Paul declares, Now you Philippians know also, that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphrodites, the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's expressing his gratitude for the way that the Christians there in Philippi, they had been providing Paul with financial support since the beginning of his ministry that he accomplished there in Philippi. Once he came in and, and planted this church and led people to Christ, they immediately started supporting his ministry, supporting him with the financial offerings. And not only that, but they also sent financial support to him there in that Roman prison. That's what chapter 4 is about. And we'll eventually get there, but this guy named Epaphrodites, he clearly was sent by Philippi to this Roman prison to provide Paul with this sweet-smelling aroma. I like to think that there were chocolate chip cookies you know, as part of this, but yeah, maybe not. But we know that they were sharing financial aid with Paul while he was there in his chains. And in light of their example, listen, we should take a moment uh, to, to consider again the word koinonia, that word koinonia, which can also be rendered fellowship, well, it's a word that's used not only in reference to community and participation within community, but the same word was also used in reference to financial gifts that were jointly collected within a community and then given uh, to uh, the leaders that they were trying to support. And so the same word, koinonia, also speaks of a contribution which exhibits the proof of participation. In other words, when, when somebody financially invests in a ministry, they are engaging in koinonia, which is a joint participation in the accomplishment of that ministry. And what this means then is that the Christian who wants to demonstrate their commitment to Christ Jesus will begin to want to take part in the work of the Lord through their financial gifts and offerings that they give uh, to the leaders of their church. 
And listen, this is especially true when the gifts are given sacrificially. You know, I, I can't help but to think about the way Jesus commended the widow for giving two mites. That, and he described the way that all the wealthy people gave from their excess while she gave from her poverty. The wealthy person, you know, the, the, the billionaire who gives $100 a week at church, is there, is there any real sacrifice to that gift? No, they don't feel that. But the widow who is poor and, and gives, t- you know, her last two cents, so to speak, that's a huge sacrifice for that person. And Jesus celebrated the widow who gave those two mites. And so we see then that sacrificial gifts of this nature are, are celebrated by the Lord. Paul also celebrated in the same way when he commended the Christians in Philippi for the way that they gave from their poverty. As a matter of fact, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There Paul declares, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Here in these verses, Paul here is describing the incredible way that the Christians at the the Macedonian church, which we know as Philippi, they were able to collect an incredibly generous offering despite the fact that they were all struggling with poverty. They were poor believers who got together and said, let's take up a collection and support Paul and, and the people traveling with Paul, and, and God blessed it. He says, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. In other words, God poured out their, the, the ability for them to, to take up a collection that was mind-blowing in comparison to their poverty. And so Paul commended them for this. Paul not only referred to their financial support as the grace of God, but he also referred to their gracious offering as a gift of fellowship, which the Philippians were participating in support of the saints who were traveling with Paul. It was a gift of koinonia. And so Paul applauds them for the way that he was receiving that support while he was in chains. And listen, Paul not only commended them for the way that they were participating with koinonia offerings, but Paul also commended them for their participation in apologetics. As a matter of fact, look with me again here at verse 7. Here Paul again declares, It is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now I want to stop there. I want to consider this word defense found there in the middle of verse 7. It's translated from the Greek word apologia, which is the basis for our English word apologetics. Just to be clear, the original Greek word, it refers to a verbal defense or a reasoned statement or argument. Now listen, I must insist that believers have been called to avoid becoming argumentative. We shouldn't go around looking for arguments, right? And yet at the same time, we have been called to be ready 
to defend our faith with gentleness and respect. And that's where Christian apologetics comes in because, you know, as you study apologetics, you start learning how to defend your faith. And in this way, we're preparing to defend our faith against those who would try to convince us to believe something different. We shouldn't be argumentative, but we should be ready to defend our faith with gentleness and respect. This was precisely the point that the Apostle Peter was making in 1 Peter chapter 3. It's verse 15 where he declares, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense, an apologetic, to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, or in other words, gentleness and respect. According to Peter, we've been called to be ready with a reasonable response. Sort of like somebody who studies martial arts, not to go out and start fights, but just in case a fight starts, they can defend themselves. And in a spiritual way, we need to be ready for the fight. We need to be ready for the argumentative people with a reasonable response that we would deliver gently and respectfully. And knowing that there will be times when the arguments of unbelievers provoke our flesh to anger, it's important to remember that we've been called to contend for the faith, but gently and respectfully. Not only that, but we've also been called to participate in the confirmation of the gospel. Now, what's the difference between the defense of the gospel and the confirmation of the gospel? Well, let's consider again how Paul puts it here in Philippians chapter 1. Look with me again at verse 7. Here he declares, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense, the apologia, and the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. Now, just to be clear, that word confirmation is translated from a Greek word, which can also be rendered verification. So Paul's saying, hey, it's your job not only to defend the faith with apologetic arguments, but also to verify the faith. Well, how would we go about verifying the faith? Well, it might help you to know that the same Greek word can be rendered testimony. So the word confirmation can be rendered testimony. And what this means then is that Paul was commending the Christians there in Philippi for the way that they were testifying to the truth of the gospel of grace. And I have no doubt that this included their testimony of salvation. As we testify to the truth of the gospel, we are testifying or presenting our testimony about how we were saved and how our life has changed since then. Listen, I love apologetics. And the guy that led me to the Lord used apologetic arguments to help me to consider the Christian faith. But what really caught my attention was his changed life. The apologetic arguments were beneficial, no doubt. But I didn't understand how his life had changed so rapidly. And it was his testimony that really grabbed my heart. Because that's what I wanted. I wanted a changed life. I wanted you know, some sort of change in my life because I, I knew the path that I was headed down was not a good one. And as I consider how his testimony impacted me emotionally while the apologetics impacted me intellectually, I do believe that both are needed. 
And at the same time, it's important to realize that you can come at somebody with all the best arguments in the world, and if they're not interested intellectually, it's not going to make an impact at all, but yet your testimony might be the very thing that changes their mind about Jesus Christ. That being the case, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, do I really have a testimony? And does my life confirm the truth of the gospel because it lines up with my testimony? Or in other words, listen, when I share my testimony about the way that the grace of God has transformed my life, do the people that I'm talking to actually see that? Does my life really confirm the truth that I've become a partaker of God's grace? Or am I still just, you know, wasting my life pursuing the same sinful pleasures that I was engaging in before my conversion to Christ? You know, I got my fire insurance in Jesus, and now I'm just going to continue living the same old, same old. With these questions in mind, it's important for us to understand that those who have become partakers of God's grace will also have a testimony that confirms the truth of the gospel by which we are saved. And this is not to suggest that you have to have some sort of Pauline experience where you're on the road to Damascus and you're about to go kill some Christians and next thing you know, you're blinded by the light and, you know, Jesus is talking. Yeah. I mean, if you have a Pauline kind of experience where it's very extreme and drastic and that's all exciting, but listen, we don't have to have a, a testimony of that nature. You might have a simple testimony that, you know, you... You were a young person that knew you needed Jesus. You knew you were a sinner. And at the age of 12, you gave your life to Jesus and you've been walking with him ever since. That is an incredible testimony. The question is, has your life changed and does your life now reflect the gospel message that lives are changed by faith in Jesus Christ? Because if there is no change in your life, the question is, well, what is your testimony then? You got scared about hell, so you bought some fire insurance, and, and, and now you're going back to the same old, same old lifestyle? That's not a testimony. In order to further explain my point, if you would, I want to consider something that Paul said in Romans chapter 12. So if you would, let's turn to Romans 12, and as you're making your way to the 12th chapter of Romans, I just want to take a moment to point out that the process of perfection by which we are personally transformed each and every day, it includes a personal participation that leads us to make sacrifices of our time and our talents and our treasures. And those sacrifices become really good evidence that we truly believe what we say we believe. Listen, if you're not ready to sacrifice for the Lord Jesus Christ, then why would anybody think that you actually believe it? But as we sacrifice our time and our talents and our treasure in order to participate in, you know, the, in the community of, of, of our church, it's in this way that people see us being perfected as we offer up our lives as a living sacrifice. And I want to consider how Paul puts it here in Romans chapter 12. Look with me there beginning at verse 1. Here Paul declares, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
Here we find Paul encouraging the Christians there at the church in Rome to present themselves to the Lord like a living sacrifice. And while I realize that this might seem like a huge ask, Paul assures us that this is just a reasonable request. To us, it seems like a huge thing to present our lives as a sacrifice to the Lord. And yet Paul says, no, this is just reasonable. That if you truly trust in Jesus Christ, the most reasonable thing that you can do is just to hand your life over and say, Lord, do with me whatever you want to do. The reason why is because this is the path of transformation that brings personal uh, perfection. Listen, those who have been born again by faith in Jesus Christ are transformed by the renewing of our mind. And as our mind is renewed by the word of God, we begin to discover what truly is good and acceptable and perfect according to the will of God. Whatever we think is perfect for our lives today, it might not be. And if you're trying to figure it out in your own finite mind, I guarantee you're not going to figure it out. But if you will simply offer yourself to the Lord as a living sacrifice and plug into your church and participate in what the Lord is doing here, he will help us to be perfected in the way that we should. And to prove my point, I want to remind you that the Lord is actually calling every Christian to participate in the ministry according to the gifts that we've received in the leading of the Lord. And I like the way that Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's verses 4 through 6, where he says this, there are diversities of gifts, speaking of the spiritual gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities but it is the same God who works all in all. He's talking about the local church here and how Christians have been given different different spiritual gifts so that we can engage in different ministries according to the diversity of activities that the Lord uh, has, has given us within this church. And so every believer here this morning has received spiritual gifts so that you, Christian, can participate in the ministry. And in this way, as we engage in the ministry, we are presenting the Lord a living sacrifice. And in this sacrifice, we are transformed, being perfected for his glory. If you want to be perfected, you have to step up and serve. You can't just sit in the stands. You can't just show up late, sit in the pew, and then get out of here as soon as possible and think that that's the path of perfection. It's not. It's important to remember that the Lord is calling us to step up and serve. And he's calling us to take up the crosses every day and follow him. Taking up the crosses in every Sunday thing or every other Sunday. Well, it's time for church. I guess I'll take up my cross and go listen to, to the pastor again, you know. Can't wait for it to be over. The game's on. Hope he doesn't go long. Trust me, I'm going long. <laughs> We've been called to offer ourselves a living sacrifice by offering up those things that could keep us from being perfected through our participation. Maybe the Lord is calling you to sacrifice Sunday football. 
so that you can stick around and serve. Is that too much of a sacrifice? Listen, someone's recording it, don't worry. You can watch the highlights. Oh, I gotta see, I gotta see the game as it's playing out. Why? What's so important about the sports ball? Men in tights running around, tussling. And, like, I, I, I don't get the importance of it. It's all good game and fun, you know, fine, whatever. But So, so you, you can't serve Jesus because the sports ball game is on? Maybe the Lord is leading you to sacrifice your pursuit of personal wealth so that you can spend more time sharing your faith with unbelievers. Maybe he's leading you to sacrifice your favorite streaming services so that you can take that money and commit it to the work of the Lord. And you're like, well, that Netflix ain't going to watch itself. You know, someone's got to watch it. You know, no, nobody actually has to watch it. That video game ain't going to play itself. Five hours later, you know, you've got carpal tunnel in your thumbs. And what did you accomplish? Well, I got gold stars and coins or extra lives or something. Really? That's, that's what you're living for? The Lord might be calling us to sacrifice many things. And we know that's not including mountain biking. That would never... Uh, he, he would never ask for that, for that kind of sacrifice. But uh, God help me. But please trust me and I tell you that the path of perfection is taken by those who are ready to sacrifice for the sake of our Savior so that we can serve him in a way that's beneficial to others. And as we begin to wrap up this study, I just want to sum it all up by presenting you with the same question that I, oppose, that, that I posed uh, at the beginning of this message. And the question is this, are we actually being perfected as we participate in our fellowship of faith or are we still just stadium seat warmers who are failing to grow? Are we wasting our time as the armchair quarterback sitting at home yelling at the, at the pastor from the living room? Because if so, you're wasting your time. And with that, I just want to remind you in closing that believers are perfected through prayerful participation. Therefore, we ought to spend time praying for the perfection of others as much as we're simultaneously praying for our own perfection. And believers are perfected through communal participation, and so we ought to plug in and participate here in our Christian community so that we can become more and more like Jesus Christ. And finally, believers are perfected through sacrificial participation. Therefore, we ought to be presenting ourselves every day as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And as we take up our cross daily, the Holy Spirit will transform us by the, by the power of God as he enables us to actively follow Jesus Christ on the path of perfection. Let's pray.